Now, you and I know that we would love the world to be a better place for our children and our grandchildren. And that's the root idea of long-termism. But now come the transhumanists and say, we are looking forward to the day when we can create beings, possibly cyborgs, uh, a mixture of human and uh, mechanical technological beings. And there are going to be billions and billions of them. And therefore, we ought to invest our wealth today, not in solving problems of world poverty, but the money ought to be pushed in the direction of the intellectual and engineering elite to preserve these billions and billions of putative individuals that we're going to create in the future. And of course, that's horrific. And what started as an idea that sounded very altruistic and actually runs under the name now of effective altruism has become this long-termism where some people are actually saying, well, look, don't bother about the two-thirds world and the poverty. Invest the money in the people that are going to be able to develop AI, develop new kinds of beings, and there'll be so much, many more of those so that all the rest are expendable. Well, that is absolutely horrific. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debate, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. Well, welcome to Ideas Have Consequences, and it is a real pleasure for me to have my dear friend, Dr. John Lennox, join us today on the podcast. Let me say a few words about John Lennox. I have often called John Lennox the C.S. Lewis of our time, and I don't mean that to be sensational. I mean it because he is. He's a, he's a former student of C.S. Lewis's at, at Cambridge. John has PhDs from Oxford, Cambridge, and the University of Wales. He's a professor. John, would you say professor emeritus these days? Yep. Yes, Professor Emeritus, uh, Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science 
at Oxford University. And um, I have a long history with John Lennox. We've done a number of debates together. By that, I don't mean we've debated each other, but rather it's been my pleasure to organize uh, a number of his uh, debates with people, with the new atheists, guys like Richard Dawkins at Oxford University um, Museum of Natural History and Christopher Hitchens at the Edinburgh International Festival and Christopher Hitchens again in my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, and so on and so forth. So we've been able to do battle together in the same foxhole many times over the years. And I consider John to be a very dear friend. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing remarkably well for a man who will be 80 in two months. <laughs> well, um, congratulations. That is, uh, that is coming. Do you have any big plans for that? No. <laughs> no, not well, really. Well, tell Sally, tell Sally, tell Sally she needs to plan a, oh, I guess going I to the Cotswolds really isn't. <laughs> some people are secretly planning, not so secretly, something. But I don't tend to mark these, <laughs> what they call big birthdays. <laughs> I just don't look at life that way. Well, this is the eighty is uh, eighty is a big one. Um, you'll know my mom. My my mom is uh, is eighty one, and um, uh, eighty is uh, is 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 really something. And yet you're still going strong, and you're still churning out the books. Uh, there you are at your home in Oxford University. Give Sally um, our love. And today we're going to be talking about your book, uh, twenty eighty four um, on artificial intelligence. Why'd you give it that title? Well, the title was suggested by one of my debating partners. Peter Atkins, professor of physical chemistry at Oxford, is a very well-known and feisty atheist. And we were traveling to a university to do a debate on the existence of God. And he said, I don't want to talk about the debate in the car. What are you writing? So I said, well, actually, I'm very interested in AI at the moment. Well, he said, I've got a title for you. I said, what is it? He said, 2084. And that resonated with me because of George Orwell's book. And I said, Peter, if I use it, I will acknowledge you. So that's exactly what happened. So it's called Artificial Intelligence 2084, AI and the Future of Humanity. And I think the title works very well. I agree with that. And although this isn't the subject of this discussion and interview, um, you do prompt me to think of a question, and that is, whose who's apocalyptic vision, dystopian vision, do you think was more right, Huxley or Orwell? Well, it's, it's very, it's hard to say, because I think the most interesting comment on that was by Neil Postman, uh, who said that... Uh, Orwell using ourselves to death. That we, yes, Orwell said that Big Brother gets us in the end, and it's what we fear will overcome us. Uh, whereas Huxley put it the other way around: it's what we love, the technology that we love, that will in the end control us. And my observation of the current state is we've got a love-hate relationship with technology, and both things are happening simultaneously in our world. Well, you know, I find that very affirming because I'm thinking of doing a podcast on, you know, that I would title Huxley versus Orwell. And maybe I'm giving too much away here, but my sense is that they're both right. Yeah, that would be a very good thing for you to explore, I think, because it enables you 
to have a kind of double lens on the current trends. Well, let's let's discuss AI. Let's discuss artificial intelligence. And let's begin at a very basic level, John. Um, define for us artificial intelligence. Well, it's always good for a mathematician to try to start with a definition. And I think... <laughs> Uh, we love definitions because they help us think. And, of course, AI, in one sense, is a very complex concept. But the easy way to, to look at it is there are essentially two strands to this, and they're very different. The first is narrow AI, and, and that's the AI that's up and running today, and we're very familiar with it. And the word narrow refers to the fact that the narrow AI system is a system that does one and only one thing that normally requires human intelligence. It's not intelligent itself. It's simply a computer and a, a database and an algorithm for filtering certain things out of that database. And the intelligence is artificial. Uh, there's a lovely, one of the earliest papers on AI had the wonderful title, and I've met the author, and he comes from Alabama, actually, you'd be interested to know, and rejoices in the name of Professor Melly Champ. And he wrote a paper with the following title, The Artificial in Artificial Intelligence is Real. <laughs> in other words, the word artificial in the phrase artificial intelligence is real. It's not real intelligence. It only simulates intelligence. And that's very important because that brings you back to Turing, who's one of the fathers of this thing. And he talked about the imitation game. We're imitating intelligence. And in fact, the leading figures, people like Peter Norvig and so on, will be quite open with you and say, look, we are not trying to actually construct real intelligence. We are quite happy with the imitation game with simulating intelligence. So narrow AI is the kind of thing that we experience when we, uh, for example, buy something on Amazon and a few seconds later there'll be a pop-up that says people who bought this bought that. And it's storing up information. We can come to that later because that's got a downside as well. Or narrow AI is what's used in facial recognition, which can pick out a criminal face in a football crowd or can be used to suppress a minority ethnic community in a part of the world. And what we discover that even with AI that's operating at the moment, there are great pluses helps us to develop vaccines, but there are negatives. And uh, the negatives are ethical and moral difficulties, the problem of autonomous weapons, and we can go on and on. Artificial general intelligence is where the science fiction tends to come in very rapidly. And that is the idea that we can produce some sort of system, technological system, that can do everything and more than a human intelligence can do. And that's where we get into the realm of talking about superintelligence and so on. And 
of course, the interesting thing to me is this is not only the province of science fiction writers, as you'd expect it to be, people like Dan Brown. It's the province of people like our uh, Astronomer Royal, Lord Rees. And because serious intellectuals, mathematicians, astrophysicists are taking it seriously, I think it is important to take it seriously. And they're trying to do this in two ways. Firstly, either to take existing human intelligence and enhance it by different uh, ways uh, using, for example, drugs or cybernetic technologies that implant all kinds of things into the human brain or otherwise. Or there's a different line of research which is trying to create some kind of superintelligence from scratch because of the problem of biology. Uh, living things degenerate and they die. And there's a great movement to try and free up intelligence from biology so that we get some kind of construct, superintelligence based in silicon or something like that. Now, that's a pipe dream as yet. And you will get all kinds of speculations as to when it will come about. It's usually always in 50 years' time from any given moment, which amuses me greatly. But those are the two scenarios, Larry. Narrow AI, which is being used all the time and uh, is creating all sorts of positive things and a lot of negative things. And then the pipe dream, the AGI, towards which many people are working. Okay, well, let's take something like, let's say you use the example of Amazon for narrow AI. Is, say, chat, GBT, is that an example of AGI? No, not at all. Uh, ChatGPT is very sophisticated, narrow artificial intelligence. And because of the advances in computing power, remember when we first got predictive text on our phones, it seems a long time ago now, and it would try to guess what we were going to say next. And it got it infuriated me. I, I always wanted to switch it off because it never got it right. What we now have is that in a highly sophisticated form. So you've got a database consisting of billions and billions of articles and books, and they're all in there. So that when you put in a prompt, write me an article about Larry Taunton, it will go into the database and it will produce that kind of thing. That is not artificial general intelligence at all. That's just narrow AI, but it is very impressive. And because it can do that, and many people are finding it very useful, uh, for example, of researching a new topic, although you always need to check out what ChatGPT produces because it can make up things and it can tell you things that are not true. You need always to check it. It can be useful for that. But the trouble is it's also going to be enormously already is being used for spreading disinformation and influencing people way beyond what they realize. And that's because it only knows what it's told, right? I mean, it's it has been programmed to give particular responses to particular things. Yeah, it doesn't know anything. It has no sense uh, that we have of knowledge. 
There's, uh, we're not talking about the creation of consciousness. Not we aren't. <laughs> this is this is a very interesting thing. You see, the idea. Uh, no one knows the the real experts in this. People like David Chalmers and so on. They are quite open. No one knows what consciousness is. The pioneers of AI, again, refer to Norvig because he and his co-author have written the kind of AI Bible. They don't know what consciousness is. So the idea of making something which you don't know what it is is, is simply absurd. That's way off the slate. There is no awareness at all. And people keep reminding us of that. The problem there's a real problem with language. Even the very words artificial intelligence, deep learning, all this kind of thing give you the impression and give the general public very much the impression that we're talking about some conscious entity when it is no such thing. And it's, it's imitating to come back to your comment about Alan Turing. Yes, it's imitating. And I think if people can remember that, uh, I like to get into people's minds the catchphrase, the artificial and artificial intelligence is real. It really is artificial. <laughs> well, you know, it's very interesting, John. I know you're not, um, you know, real active on social media, but I see people all the time. Sometimes you can tell, say, on something like uh, Twitter or X, uh, what is an actual, you know, a real account and what is a bot. But it will, uh, it will be a photograph, let's say a photograph of John Lennox. And uh, it will say, you know, lives in Oxford, professor of mathematics and um, philosophy of science. And then it will imitate you. And people will, I will see people very frequently on social media who are arguing with what they don't realize is a bot. Mm. Is a bot that is impersonating uh, someone. Uh, it might be uh, a voter for Trump. It might be an environmentalist. Uh, it might be a Nazi, but it has been programmed to imitate and imitate quite effectively and often giving very general responses to things which people in turn respond to. Yeah, it could be imitating you. Uh, and that is the scary thing. We're yes. really into the world of deep fakes here. And it only takes a pretty short audio clip and an equally short video clip for them to turn Larry Taunton into an image on a screen that will say anything they want you to say. And that's what people, and I think you're very much more au fait with this than I am, that's what people in uh, your country and my country are very scared of coming up to elections in both of our countries next year, that deep fake impersonations are going to create absolute havoc uh, with the voting population because they won't be able to tell who's real and who isn't. And there already have been incidents, as you know, of that kind of thing. And that I meet a lot of people who are actually very scared of this because it's, it robs people of their true identity and it messes up public discourse so that you don't know what is true anymore. And uh, I think it was the former head of uh, GCHQ, which is our major listening service, uh, secret service in the UK, just says the potential for misinformation 
uh, spread to billions of people is is simply unlimited. And the tools are now simple to use. It used to be in the province of very clever people to, to make an image of someone say something. Now it, you can get it virtually for free on the internet. So we're in serious new territory. It's, it's a revolutionary situation. And it creates an enormous problem of detection. How do you detect plagiarism, of course, is, is one level. But how do you detect deep fake and fraud? And I know that our governments are trying to work on this. But, of course, <laughs> the ethical side always is outpaced by the technology by a massive magnitude. I cannot imagine the problems for um, teachers, for professors these days. I remember, John, um, 30 years ago when I was teaching Western Civilization at the University of Alabama, I was going into the, um, the GTA office, Graduate Teaching Assistance office. You know, there are 18 of us and all our desks are spread around the room. And I'm walking past one of my colleagues' desks and he has a big stack of papers. Um, and I stop and I go back and look at the paper that he has on the top of that pile. And it was a paper on um, feudal monarchies. And I pulled out that paper and I took it over to my desk and I had the exact same paper on my desk. Now this is in, this is say 1995, you know, it's something like this. And it was because at the time, you know, students could go online and download um, term papers on various topics. That is nothing relative to what we're talking about now. And I, you know, I, this leads me to a question about ethical problems, not, not just simply in, in, in the realm of teaching or in education, but what do you see as the primary ethical problems of AI? Well, they vary because AI is in virtually every aspect of our lives. And you could say, let's take the first example I mentioned, the question of the harvesting of information. When you buy something on Amazon, what many of us don't realize is that the information that we give voluntarily is being harvested. Now, there's a, a very famous uh, professor, a retired professor from MIT called Susanna Zuboff. And she's written a book that is very highly regarded called Surveillance Capitalism. And the point she's making, and it's a serious point, is this is a, a multi-million, if not billion-dollar industry that these companies that are harvesting the information are sending your information on to third parties without your permission. So that's one classic example. And we are, in that sense, conniving at it. We wear voluntarily. I have an iPhone here. It's tracking me everywhere. Uh, and so all this stuff is going out into cyberspace and dear knows what's happening to it. So that's one ethical problem. Then there are the ethical problems of what I call surveillance communism. Uh, the kind of thing you find among the Uyghurs in China, where facial recognition technologies that are rightly used by the police in some of our countries to catch criminals, for which we're thankful, are being used to affect a, 
a surveillance network of which George Orwell would have been proud in the sense that it really is 1984 plus, plus, plus. And the weaker population, unbelievable the way in which they have been suppressed and the information is being uploaded and so on. So for, uh, pardon me for just one moment, John, for those, for those who might not be familiar with what he's talking about, the facial recognition technology is not just simply identifying individual specific faces, the technology that is being used in China to weed out the uh, Uyghur population, it has been designed to identify people of that ethnic group or potential people of that group. So you haven't yet been identified or arrested. You're um, you know, walking around Beijing and the facial recognition tags you as someone who might be Uyghur. And then the police simply follow up with you. So that's, that's what we're talking about. This kind of creepy usage of AI and uh, facial recognition to suppress and to tyrannize a whole people. Continue, John. Yeah, it's not only that, though. It's used for social control. The, the Chinese, I understand, have a social credit system. And we're beginning to get that kind of thing in the West where tags, the, the number of CCTV cameras in China is just mind-boggling, one for every two or three people. And you're on camera all the time and they're watching. And if they It's see, that way in London. Yes. And if they see some little misdemeanor, like throwing trash on, on the roadway or... Um, having a conversation with a foreigner or something, that goes as a black mark against you. And in the end, uh, that adds up and you can find that you can't get into your favorite restaurant or you can't book a holiday, you can't buy a new car. And that's being rolled out, as I understand it, all over China. And there was a very powerful, uh, chilling article, I think in Newsweek a couple of years ago about this. And the writer who is Chinese warned the West and said, look, you're not going to escape this. All the technology needed for this is in the West already. The only difference is it's not yet, not yet under a central control, but it will be. Keeping tags on people has become ever more easy. And as I say, we volunteer for it. And that is a problem. I can see that. And that, that and that's Huxley. That's coming back to the beginning of our conversation. That's Huxley. Is that you're voluntarily because yes, exactly yes. you find it delightful or pleasurable. Um, I, I, what would you say to those people, John, who say, "Well, I have nothing to hide." I know a lot of people that their response when you say, "You do know that when you use WhatsApp, just to use WhatsApp as an example, that that is really an intel gathering device. They, they, they haven't created that really to facilitate your conversation globally. It is to train artificial intelligence and to capture data, personal information about you. When I say that to many people, they say, ah, well, I have nothing to hide. What, what's your response to that? Well, my response is nothing to hide from whom? Uh, that assumes that the people that are watching you are friendly, kind, benign, and benevolent. But if you are under a totalitarian regime, you might be living 
in Putin's Russia at the moment that say I have nothing to hide because you're morally upright. But as far as the uh, principles uh, and regulations and ideology of the government is concerned, you you might be very much a suspicious person. And it's all very well saying I have nothing to hide. But if what you are doing, for example, I am uh, a Christian and I believe in engaging in public debate about it. Now, in certain parts of the world, that wouldn't be approved of at all. And so immediately you run into difficulty. And I think it's a very superficial response to say, I have nothing to hide. And of course, when people are young, they often do things and they think it's great fun and they put them on WhatsApp and photograph them and all the rest. And then they come a few years later to apply for a job. And all this information is brought up and they don't get the job because of it. That's happening all the time. And people with that attitude, I have nothing to hide, are people that need to learn to be responsible and careful. Otherwise, they could be shooting themselves in the foot, basically. Hi there. Sorry for taking over Larry's ad space. This is Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. A lot of folks simply don't realize that the problems in their life, the problems in our society, can actually be traced back to globalism. When I was a young man, I was one of six children. My father didn't make a lot of money. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood where most families supported themselves on a single income. Uh, not in luxury, but comfortably in the United States. That is simply impossible for the vast majority of Americans today. So something changed, and, and we hardly talk about it, right? It changed dramatically, you know, just in my lifetime. As a former Wall Street guy, I believe in evidence and data. The political world is full of sloganeering. Uh, it's full of a lot of folks who make very grandiose statements, but don't back or cite those statements with evidence, with evidence and data. When that orange guy came down the escalator, he won me over, largely with his uh, correct assessment that globalism was harming Americans, particularly China. Uh, he saw it and he indicted it. And he and I spoke many times about trade issues, about globalism more broadly. When, when, when we view what is happening to us, when we view the injustices and the outrages that are happening in society, we need to look behind the surface level. Many of the ills that afflict this country can be traced back directly to globalism. Housing affordability, it has never been worse. The globalists don't believe in strong borders. They see cheap labor. This sick and demented idea that children should have their sexuality, their, their sex changed permanently. It's super important for us to see when, when, there's, when there's an injustice, when there's an abuse, when there's a crisis, what is behind the crisis? Who is behind the curtain? So please click on the link in the bio to make sure that you are subscribed so that you're going to get the new episodes when the Steve Cortez show premieres. As for a social credit system, we are already on the front end of that. Just in, just in smaller ways, when you catch an Uber, you get a rating. Yep. You get a rating. That driver rates you from, one, I think it's one to five stars. Isn't that right, guys? One to five stars. Uh, you get a rating on there. And um, 
you give them a rating uh, in return. And I was listening to a couple of guys just on sports radio, of all things, guys said, you know, I'm, I have a 4.85 rating on Uber. And he says, and that, that actually is deemed kind of low. He says, I've been docked a couple of times. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get my rating higher. I couldn't help but think that's the way people will be talking about their social credit oh, score once we start yep. moving in that direction. Let, let me ask you about a figure who is very prominent in the discussion about AI, and that is Yuval Noah Harari, a very scary figure. Uh, he kind of comes off as sociopathic. You know, when this guy is in interviews, he's very frequently platformed by Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. You see him in all of these conversations talking about the future of artificial intelligence in terms that are quite frightening, but it seems that to him, these are fairly good things. What, what's your opinion of Harari? Well, Harari is, first, he's not a scientist. He, he's a historian, uh, although I'm not sure how much actual history he's written. He's become famous for writing a couple of bestsellers, Homo sapiens and Homo deus, and he concerns me uh, because of his very widespread influence. He really is an influencer, as you say, peers in all these forums and, and all the rest of it. But what he actually has to say concerns me more because of its inaccuracy. And his reading of history seems to me to be very strange because in his second book, that is Homo Deus, the God-man or the man who is God, with which I interact quite a lot in my book, simply because so many people have read it and want to know about what I think of what he says, I, I point out that he has this uh, very strange analysis, which parallels that of Stephen Pinker, which many people have rejected completely. You know that uh, war is obsolete and all this kind of stuff. And Harari, the better angels of our nature, yes, or something yes, like that. That's right. That's a very strange. Uh, the, the book, yes, the bestseller. Yeah. But anyway, Harari says that there are two major agenda items for the 21st century. The first is to solve the technological problem of human death. He regards it as a technical problem and technical problems of technical solutions. And then secondly, to enhance human happiness. Now, I find that extremely interesting because the idea of solving the problem of death is a very ancient one. And enhancing human happiness, his target is, and this is more or less a quote, is to turn homo sapiens into homo deus. In other words, turns human into gods. And he, he at least retains a small Eternal g. beings. Uh, that's right. He, a small g for gods. But the point is, this mm -hmm. is a very ancient thing. And once I noticed that, I felt, right, we're back in the early chapters of Genesis. And that's hugely important culturally because the idea of humans becoming God has permeated history. And it's been behind many dictatorships uh, in the ancient uh, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, and even way right into modern times. 
we find people essentially playing God. And Harari is encouraging people to think that they can become gods by simply solving a technical problem and then possibly upgrading themselves. Now, as a Christian, I really have got something to say about that. And when people tell me this, as they do, I say, you're too late. And they look at me and say, what do you mean we're too late? We haven't got there yet. Oh, I said, yes, you haven't got there yet, but you're too late. Why am I too late? Well, I said, the problem of physical death was solved 20 centuries ago when Jesus Christ was raised by the power of God from the dead. And as for uh, enhancing human happiness and uploading ourselves into some higher form, that's also been solved because, and this gives me a real opportunity to explain Christianity against the background of the promises that the transhumanists like Harari are offering. I say, look, it would be good for you, therefore, to listen to, to Christianity, which is actually a lot more evidence-based than Harari's transhumanist promises, when it tells us that everybody who faces the mess that they've made of their own lives, uh, and perhaps those of others, and I simply point out that there's no road to utopia that uh, can bypass the problem of human moral failure and sin. And that's the mistake that most dictators have made. But if they're prepared to repent of that and face it and trust Christ as Savior and Lord, then he promises them that he'll raise them from the dead and upload them into the world to come in order to use these words. And I, my appeal, therefore, in my book is very simple, Larry. I say, look, if you're prepared to take seriously some of these AI scenarios, like those of Max Tegmark of Princeton and so on, then I would like to commend to you to take seriously a much more ancient one that's got much more credibility because it's backed by much more evidence. And that is the Christian one, which factors in something that all of these people miss, and that is that there's a fundamental flaw in humanity. Now, of course, these are big issues, as you know, and one has to do it in a nuanced way. But I've been very encouraged at the traction that second part of my book has had with people out there in the secular world who've never heard what the Bible has to say about the future. Well, this raises a couple of very interesting philosophical questions. And the first of which is is this. Listen, you've you've spent a major part of your latter career as an academic addressing academic atheism. I have often argued that when we started wading into that issue, you know, when th there was a spate of books that came out after 9-11 that had Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code um, being one of them, but also Dan Brown's, um, excuse me, uh, Dan Dennett's uh, Breaking the Spell, Sam Harris's Letter to a Christian Nation, Christopher Hitchens' uh, How Religion Spoils, God is Not Great, How Religion Spoils Everything, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, well, we've really started taking on those guys and those kind of issues in 2006. And then you had your debate with Dawkins here in Birmingham in 2007, and then Hitchens at the Edinburgh International Festival in 2008, and on and on and on. Here we are, John, 
um, 15 years later, and it seems to me that all of this is the practical outworking of that atheistic worldview. Do you, do you agree with me in that? Yes, it's quite noticeable that I would probably say the great majority of people, and that's admitted by the watchers of all this cultural stuff and AI, the great majority of people driving this are atheists. They have an atheistic worldview, certainly Harari has, and many of the others have. And therefore, it seems to me more and more important, just as when you brilliantly took the opportunity of getting me involved and getting others involved in the debate with the atheists, here we are again, but it's an entirely different level. And what is at stake here is not just simply God and science. What is at stake here is what it means to be human. And the whole AI debate is impacting on what it means to be human, because we're now, as C.S. Lewis so presently saw in the 1940s, we're now in this situation where we are not only capable of, but desiring to manipulate human beings and change them out of all recognition. Uh, and so it it is a very, very serious issue. And therefore, <laughs> we need to get back into that debate so that we are combating it at the highest level. I just hope that some younger people than myself are getting into this uh, so that the public see that there is an alternative to this atheistic take on everything. John, um, you, we started at the beginning of this. Your, your 80th birthday is coming up, and let me wish you a happy birthday prematurely. But, but you're, you're, you know, we all face at some time or another um, our own mortality. You have to you know, begin to ponder, you know, deeper questions that might come when you're young because you've suffered um, some kind of health setback, maybe an accident such as I suffered, or perhaps you've been diagnosed with cancer, something that requires you to think on your own mortality, or it might be age that causes you to do that. How much do you think that this whole push, you know, for, you know, you're talking about uploading, you know, our consciousness to, you know, to some kind of supercomputer or, you know, the, uh, speaking in terms of God and becoming gods with a, a lowercase g or uh, becoming eternal beings in the sense of artificial intelligence. How much of this do you think is driven by a fear of death? You discuss that in your book. I think it's all driven in a way, a fear of death. I think the biblical analysis is very clear that all human beings have that fear and they've developed all kinds of, of ways of avoiding it. And you think of the people who, for example, have had their bodies and brains frozen on death in the hope that one day they're going to be resuscitated and uploaded onto silicon. I think people are afraid of death and some of them readily admit it. Some of the leaders in AI admit that they're afraid of death. And I think that's the wonderful thing about the Christian situation is that we do at least have a credible answer to that. And we need to allow people to see it. 
because it's not only AI that's scaring people today. There are a lot of very scary things going on and people are desperate to find meaning. And we live in a world where you get that sense that many things that we took for granted for a long time are falling apart. The whole question of wars on European soil again, the question of absolute disasters, natural catastrophes, we call them, the violence that's going on, our school systems falling to pieces, uh, the cost of living rocketing, uh, poverty increasing, all this kind of thing. People are really worried and they're searching for answers, existential answers. And I think AI offers to some people, but you ne we need to be very careful here. The solutions that the transhumanists are offering tend to be only applicable to the very wealthy by definition. And of course, one of the things that we haven't mentioned at all, and I don't mention it in my book because it, it wasn't a big issue then, is long-termism. And long-termism, which emanates a lot of it from Oxford, is a really scary idea. Now, you and I know that we would love the world to be a better place for our children and our grandchildren. And that's the root idea of long-termism. But now come the transhumanists and say, we are looking forward to the day when we can create beings, possibly cyborgs, uh, a mixture of human and uh, mechanical technological beings. And there are going to be billions and billions of them. And therefore, we ought to invest our wealth today, not in solving problems of world poverty, but the money ought to be pushed in the direction of the intellectual and engineering elite to preserve these billions and billions of putative individuals that we're going to create in the future. And of course, that's horrific. And what started as an idea that sounded very altruistic and actually runs under the name now of effective altruism has become this long-termism where some people are actually saying, well, look, don't bother about the two-thirds world and the poverty. Invest the money in the people that are going to be able to develop AI, develop new kinds of beings, and there'll be so much, many more of those so that all the rest are expendable. Well, that is absolutely horrific and yet is seriously being suggested a few miles from where I'm sitting at the moment. Well, I'm sure you're aware, um, we've certainly have discussed it on this podcast, and that is the push among elements of that elitist uh, class um, towards depopulation. Yeah, that's um, correct. The yeah. massive push um, towards this kind of thing. Everyone's gonna encounter pain in their life. The questions deal with the degree of one's pain and the source of one's pain and how we deal with our pain. In this course, I'm speaking very personally about my own pain and some of the lessons that I've learned in coping with pain, how we minister to people with pain and what kind of perspective are we to have on the big questions that surround pain and human suffering.
Why would you take a course like this? Well, presumably, if you haven't suffered in your own life, you will encounter people who do. And undoubtedly, some of them are people who are very near and dear to you. I think it'd be very helpful for you to take a course like this in order to understand what they're experiencing and the way that you minister to people in those kinds of circumstances. So I'd love for you to take this course of mine. And I wanna tell you this, that when you subscribe to Tome, you get access not just to my course, but to more than a hundred other courses that are dealing with very practical issues and assisting you in living and in flourishing. So where can you get this course? Well, you can't get it at Amazon. You can't get it at Apple. You can't get it at Netflix. You can only get it at Tome. So I want you to go to tomeapp.com slash pain to learn more about my course. Let's get back to the podcast. John, an obvious question, it seems to me, is you see figures like the late Stephen Hawking, uh, people like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, others who are warning of the dangers of AI, and yet it seems we're just barreling forward towards this. Why is no one pumping the brakes on this? It's a very curious phenomenon that, that the very people that are doing the warning are still investing billions in, in the development and it moves forward. And that has made quite a few people quite suspicious. Uh, the, and they're commenting on that by saying this is a very clever business ploy that uh, people are saying this is desperate and we need to prepare for an absolute uh, huge wave of problematic happenings because of AI. But we're the experts. We're going to save you from that. So we'll barrel on with our research. And I just don't know the answer to that. The interesting thing to me, and I spoke not long ago to one of the leading people in this field. And I said, are they not telling us everything? And he was hesitant. They said, well, he said, I suspect we're certainly not learning everything. Because for leading people to say that we should pause in our research, we shouldn't develop chat GPT-5, for example, we should pause for six months. Why is that? And the issue that they raise, they call it the control problem. And I think it was Paula Boddington, who's a mathematician, computer scientist, made a very perceptive remark and said, you know, the problem with the original creation was that God lost control of the creatures he'd made in his own image. And we're li liable to do the very same thing. And that's what's scaring people. It's the control problem. They don't understand, at least they say they don't understand, what's going on in even the kind of AI that's involved in chapter GPT-4. I just don't know. But it clearly is that there's something that is making them sufficiently afraid to call on a moratorium, which of course is not going to happen because every country in the world is trying to be number one in the AI race. And I think it was Putin that said that the, the person that wins that race is going to dominate the world. And he's probably right. We're, we're in the throes of a revolution that's just as big, if not bigger than the industrial revolution. And 
governments are attempting to set up ethical frameworks and devise them and all this kind of thing. And Larry, you know, as a historian, as a culture watcher, that the whole problem with that is this, that making international agreements is something people do when they've got roughly equal amounts of power. Hitler made treaties in his political infancy, but once he got the power, he tore them up. So if I uh, and you are competing and I say, look, if you do X, I'll do Y, and we have some sort of consensus for a while. But once I get enough power and you say, if you do that, I'll do, and I'll say, you'll do what? Once I've got the power, the morality and ethics of it won't matter. And that's the scary thing, that utilitarianism only works when you've got centers of roughly equal power. It it fails to work beyond that, as we've seen. Well, um, uh, Dr. Lennox uh, has suffered a, a stroke last year, and he's He's been very gracious to join us today on the podcast, and I know he's feeling somewhat fatigued. John, John, I think I've told you this, but it bears repeating for the sake of our audience to speak to your influence uh, as an academic, uh, as a, um, you're more than that. You're more than a, uh, just an academic or a Christian apologist. Um, your commentary on the culture uh, is vastly influential, and I would tell people that if you haven't read this book, 2084, Dr. John Lennox, you need to get it. It's excellent. I've been up <laughs> much probably uh, to to John's uh, um, dismay. I've been up until early hours of the morning sending him my commentary, you know, as I'm, as I'm reading this. But I do want to say this. I was at the World Economic Forum earlier this year, and I, uh, I had a conversation with one of the presenters who was an expert on artificial intelligence. He shall go unnamed, and I want to be as anonymous as possible because this might get him into some trouble. But I was asking him uh, about artificial intelligence, and I was being very careful myself about revealing you know, the, my own position on this. And he gave initially all of the WEF, as they say, the WEF, um, you know, nice, nice things to say about it. Oh, we're we're changing the world for the better and uh, creating a safer planet and a sustainable future. You know, all these kinds of things. But then when I started started pushing on him just a bit, and I said, "Yeah, but I mean, do you see any dangers with this?" And he looks around and he says, "There are loads of dangers." And he began to tell me uh, that he believes that within the next five years, he says the the internet will be eighty percent artificial intelligence. And he said, you'll not be able to tell the difference. And he says, furthermore, um, while governments express their concerns about artificial intelligence, what they really mean is the, their concerns about what other governments are doing, because they are not pumping the brakes on artificial intelligence at all. He says, no one seems to really understand what they're creating. He, uh, the people who are paying for it, the politicians who are behind it are the ones who understand the least, you know, what artificial intelligence is. And then he went on to tell me about, this was not his, his description of it, but it's mine, a kind of Terminator-like warrior bot that he began to describe to me. And he said, I am watching the development of these robots. And he said, he said, when these things hunt you, they kill you. 
And he said, when they shoot at you, they never miss. And he says, this is the future of warfare. But he says, it's also the future of surveillance. And he says, I, as someone who is on the inside, who is watching this, I'm terrified by what I'm seeing. Wow. And this was a man, by the way, I asked him if he was familiar with your book. And he said, yes, he had read your book. And I was glad to hear that, even given the fact that he was not um, a man of faith. So be encouraged by that. These, these people who are doing this, at least you are a voice in, in, in their ear who is cautioning them about the direction that they're going. John Lennox, it has been great to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed.